that would be that's dope. What my week was, or whatever you want to. Yeah, I get. It. That's true. Just normal conversation. Kind yeah. Of. <laughs> this, you sound like me this. trying to ask how to interact with people. Do, do you know Pac-Man? Paku <laughs> <laughs> Paku used to flap my mouth, open and close. I'll leave you alone forever now. Thanks. <laughs> um. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Do Better Dev Show. Uh, for those of you joining us on YouTube, welcome to the video experience. Um, yeah, uh, presenting today is me, Yanish, your co-host, with your other co-host, Nathan. How are you yeah. doing, Nathan? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing great as well, yeah. How was your week? It was good. I fell down the, the rabbit hole. I, as we mentioned last time, started doing some assembly stuff. And then I started reading that book, uh, Structured Computer Organization, 5th edition, which I know you're familiar with. And uh, yeah, it, I struggled for an hour falling asleep last night because I was thinking about logic gates and, and latches. So yeah, as my habits tend to be, I went immediately way too obsessed with it so we'll see how this works out if it sticks around for more than a week or two but uh, i'm going to continue working on that and tomorrow's a holiday so i can do some more of that tomorrow which will be fun uh overall it was a good week yeah how about you that sounds great intro uh, I mean, intro was looking good so made some improvement <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I I said I would do that better on my do better resolution last week. Uh, so I've just been, you know, just just before recording next, this I went like a couple of times, uh, in my head of what I would do. So, I think it didn't completely suck, but it'll it'll get better over the times. Mm -hmm. uh, I can almost talk like a normal human being, uh, which is just such a big <laughs> improvement. Uh, but. You know, um, besides that, it was pretty good. Didn't fall into any rabbit holes myself. Also, you took a pretty big pause after you said I fell down and I got really concerned for a brief second there. Yeah, yeah I had yeah. a fall. I've reached the, the age where I need to say I've had a fall. <laughs> Did, you couldn't get up? No, I've fallen. Uh, <laughs> I just couldn't get up. Uh, yeah, so I, I just, um, you know, did some work. Uh, Hung out with one of my friends and just now sitting at home and because our province has said us again to stay at home and not to see anybody. So yeah, just just writing blog posts. The blog is live. Um, I think I mentioned that in the last one. And yeah, that, that was pretty much my week. Right on. I was impressed with the blog because you're one, using a theme. And I'm using the Gatsby Starter blog, so it's just a plain blog. And I was immediately jealous when I highlighted some of the text, and it was like, do you want to copy this? And I went, I do, actually. Thank you. Uh, and I was like, why is he so much better than me at all these things? And then I remembered you have this nice theme going on. So Yeah, I my, definitely I was spend... impressed for a moment, though. Oh, great. The, that moment is all I needed. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I spent way too much time uh, searching for a theme, and it just seemed like something I wanted as a starter, and it had a roadmap of the things I do want for the long term. So it's open source. I'm going to keep pinging them till they implement those features, or I'm going to ping them and say, can I do it? Just 
I just need this. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it was a pretty cool team. Select highlight to share, copy, dark mode, just out of the box. I was like, you know what? This is good. I'm sold. Um, yeah. I will say, pretty though, having, having a blog powered just by JSON is crazy fast compared to yours, which has images. So <laughs> mine has no images, and it feels exactly the same locally as it does when it's deployed. It's just very boring. So, but mine's a dev blog, so nobody cares. I care, Nick. I do. <laughs> you shouldn't. <laughs> dev blogs don't need photos. Uh, but anyway, today we're supposed to be talking about some testing and different approaches maybe that we take, uh, what we've found works and doesn't work, all the usual stuff that you would talk about with respect to a topic. So you were making uh, some notes prior. Is there anything you'd like to do leading in or should I kick us off? Um, yeah, you, you can feel free to kick us off. I just, yeah, I, I thought it would be a good uh, talking, talking about it. And just a full on disclaimer, uh, both of us have been full stack developers uh, slash ops and other roles in our lives. Neither one of us has been an official QA. Uh, so whatever it is coming, it's coming from perspective of developers who do lots of testing and working with people who are actual QAs. Yeah, I will say first of all, working with a team that has QA is super rad. And I'm a big fan of that because developers get to focus more on making sure that things are working the way that they think they're supposed to work. And they don't have to spend quite as long, you know, sanity checking edge cases, which we never think of things that QA thinks of anyway. They're just, that's the, it's a different way of thinking about how to use systems. So, uh, that I guess actually that's a good thing to start off with is you can't necessarily trust your own testing of a feature that you built because if you've ever had to demo that feature, if you've ever had somebody else take that feature and you're just like, hey, let me see this thing, They'll, whatever they say first or whatever they type first is always going to break it. It's just, it's amazing how well this seems to work. Uh, it'll be, you know, you have a field and you think, oh, it's, I've validated all the edge cases. And then they're like, well, what if I want to type in a number? And you're like, how did I not think to type in a number? I don't know if that'll work. And then you try to submit it and the page crashes and you go, wow, okay, cool. So that's why QA or having at least another developer is always really important to have a, a separate set of eyes on your work, no matter how confident you think you are. And actually on our last team, I was talking to the guy, one of the guys that moved from QA into a developer role. And he had commented to me that he actually couldn't even move back and forth between them very well. He found that once he was thinking like a developer and trying to build features, he would be so much worse off at testing, even when it was different other people's features and he'd spent most of his time doing QA. Uh, versus once he got back into QA, it took him a bit of time to get back up to speed on thinking of things as a developer would. So they are separate skill sets and it's not necessarily uh, transferable, even though there is some transfer between them. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I never thought about a person switching between the roles, how it would shift the mindset. Nor had I. Yeah, so it, it as having not worked in QA, as you mentioned, it, it didn't occur to me that that would be the case. but. Having given my code to QA to test, I know they do think differently than I do. 
Yes, of course, yeah. And so many, so many bugs and things can be caught and avoided before it reaches the customer. Of course, real testing happens in production and you can't, <laughs> can't, can't just not have that. Um, yeah, but, but having a dedicated QA on the team has been invaluable on our, on our projects before. We've actually worked on one where we had a QA and it just helped push a lot of things on test um, before it ever reached production. It gets painful sometimes though, because you think the feature's done over and over again, and then you realize, nope, there's still some validation issues, or the page still stutters when it shouldn't stutter, or something. And yeah, it's better to catch those things early than later, but it can be painful, and I think it might feel like it's slowing you down, but it's far faster to deal with it before it goes out than to try to reconcile poor data quality or put some new bugs into the backlog that you're never going to get to, but people are going to complain about forever. So it's kind of like a form of tech debt, really, if you just don't test enough ahead of time. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that famous saying, right? If you don't test your software, your customers will do it for you. So it's just... Either you do it beforehand or they will, and sooner or later that bug's gonna be found. Um, yeah. Speaking of, actually, a uh, interesting side topic that I sort of remembered is, have you ever looked into bug bounties? Is that where someone puts up a bug that needs to be fixed and you get some sort of reward for fixing it? It's. Sort of. It's it's mostly bug bounties usually happen when you it's like bigger companies like Facebook and such. Uh, you go into their website and you try to find problems, and then when you report them, depending on the severity, they pay you. They're like, "Oh, cool, thanks for finding this," and then they. Oh, it's the opposite of what I thought. <laughs> you find bugs, you don't fix bugs. <laughs> yes, yeah. Okay. I guess then they have their developers to fix those because they have access to the code base and everything. No, I've never looked into that at all. Cool. Now it just popped in my head. I, I know I tried to look into it when I was younger, but a lot of those were sort of network hacks. Because, uh, of course, if Facebook is being shipped to production, their QA and testing is probably a lot better than some, I don't know, high school kid who thinks he can do hacksing. Uh, hacksing, I said hacksing. Uh, we won't look over that. I don't know. My favorite crazy person, George Hotz, he's the one that jailbroke the iPhone at 17. So who knows? That's true. That's true. Thanks. Now I'm comparing myself to a genius and I feel great about myself. Yeah. By now you should up all night. By now you should be solving self-driving cars with a phone. I already did. It's you get a driver. Right. <laughs> just, you just uh, outsource that. Yeah. Delegation. Are you not a good manager, Nathan? No, actually, I don't <laughs> think I would be. Ah, you've ruined the okay. rest of my career now. Thank you. <laughs> this is documented forever. <laughs> I, I will. I will replay this anytime you ever get interviewed for a position of manager. Appreciate that. Yeah, it's actually okay. that would save me trouble. So, <laughs> okay, going back to uh, testing then. Um, Tell us, uh, tell us about your experience with testing. Uh, what kind of testing you have done and what kind of testing you like to do as a developer? Sure, so unfortunately I've done UI-based testing where you use something like Selenium WebDriver to power a browser that 
you then interact with your app through. And I'm starting there because it's the one I have the least to say about. It's pretty much always broken and horrible and I hate it. And it's the ironic part is that would be theoretically the best way to test the app and the only way you would test the app if it was good. But it's terrible. And you can only write it for in any meaningful way for UIs that aren't going to change frequently or soon. And the problem with the way you have to write them is you can't even write them to live through refactors because the DOM is what you're basing it off of, not what the app looks like. So your DOM selectors and the shape of the DOM tree in general is going to change no matter what you're changing. So sometimes it'll be, I need the nth child and the nth is now, is like it's no longer the second, it's the third. And so now your test broke and you're like, is this actually a regression? No, we just added a new form field and the test is a false negative. So they're basically useless as far as I'm concerned. Every time you go in, they fail. And anytime you go in and change something, you expect it to fail. But on the other hand, something that's similar and I think is a thousand times easier and gets you a good portion of the benefit are snapshot tests. So those allow you to inject, if you're using something like React, allow you to inject properties into views or components and render them out. And you know if this is working correctly, you essentially save a snapshot of that file with the props injected and it compares that snapshot every time that you run the test to the new version and then if you update that component it'll show you a little diff and it's actually often a bit difficult to read so it doesn't necessarily matter but the point is it'll tell you something changed go manually review the thing that changed is it the way you want it yes rerun the snapshot you now have a new snapshot but where it's beneficial is if you're in component A and then component B snapshot changes and you went, I shouldn't have changed. I didn't touch that. You now know something has changed and you have to go look at component B and decide whether or not there was actually a regression there. So it gives you that same alert that sort of taps you on the shoulder and says something might be wrong, but it takes almost no effort and is far easier to maintain. So I would say those are great. That as far as front end stuff goes. And I've really never not done anything as far as unit tests go on the front end. Everybody talks about them, but I, I haven't really seen anybody use them. That said, Storybook looks like it could be cool as far as that sort of thing goes, because you get to write all of these sort of sandboxed components. And you can say, I want it to look like this in dark mode, for example, which is something I did for Spotify. And if those are rendering correctly, you can see them rendering all on their own and behaving all on their own. So it's kind of like a interactable, viewable version of a snapshot. So that could be cool. But yeah, unit tests haven't really used. And then on the back end, unit tests are great. And they, especially if you know what you are trying to write, they can be a really good way to get, or I would say that getting those written early on in your development can be really handy. So if you're building a, a CRUD series of endpoints, it might be really good to have some unit tests around the model that just do the things that you know you don't want to have to manually retest all the time and just be like, is my validation still working? Yeah, because I ran my unit test, it took half a second and the validation is still working correctly. And then on top of that layer, integration tests 
that'll actually hit the endpoints and uh, make sure the responses are correct and that sort of thing. Uh, and then there's manual testing on top of that, but some other testing might come to mind, but those are the broad strokes as far as testing I've used and my high-level opinions or feelings on how useful or not they've been. Mm. That makes sense, yeah. Um, I've always been curious about front-end testing because, again, I am not a great or even a super intermediate front-end developer. And for the most part, I've just always thought, it looks fine, the HTML renders, but could be wrong. Uh, and I've seen it go wrong so many times uh, that I should be should be more vigilant about snapshot testing and everything else. But I generally just let um, QA or somebody else who's better <laughs> can figure it out. So they they do better at it than I do. Yeah, I'm realizing that because of our different focuses, I'm sounding heavily front end these days when we talk when you do these discussions. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. It's just that. I've done front end for a good portion of my time, and Yan really hasn't. So by contrast, I'm the front end person in this conversation. And you forever will be, no. until we start having guests like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. We he know he's already a developer. React. Yeah, yeah, he, he'll talk about hooks all day. Yeah, yeah. How do you, okay, uh, so when it comes to, I, I was just curious about it. So. One of the things you said about like not a lot of unit testing on the front end, right? And I guess one of the major reasons for that is you're not supposed to or you shouldn't really put a lot of business logic or anything complex on the front end because then the browser has to execute it, maybe device heavy and specific, and you really don't want to hang up clients' devices to do any of that stuff. Um, but what about, I don't know, smaller stuff like you're formatting dates a certain way and you want to ensure, I don't even know, what kind of processing on the front end is justified so that you would write a unit test for it? So something like that you could do. If you had some pure functions that were your helpers that were supposed to intake a number of different shaped inputs and output a standardized date string, for example, sure, you could write some unit tests for that. There's just, those are so limited. You have... Yeah such a small proportion of your front-end code that is actually that. And I've seen it before where there will be a unit test directory that has maybe a couple hundreds worth of lines of code actually under that directory just because there's not a whole lot to unit test. It's going to be you have your, your date formatter, your phone number formatter, your name formatter, maybe a capitalize function and some basic things like that and otherwise it's all components and making sure that they render and interact correctly. We had quite a bit of unit tests in the AngularJS app I worked in back a few years ago and that was I think largely because everything was very class-based there and it did make some more sense to have something like does this class do what it's supposed to do? But when everything's smushed together in a component, you've got your logic, your state, your uh, props, and your display all in one spot. You really just care that the component does what the component's supposed to do. And that sort of thing, I think, works well for snapshot testing and 
to some extent having a combination of manual tests and if you really wanted to, I'm sure you can do something that does a, a storybook-like environment for each component, which I think would be preferable to a whole page view that I have problems with with something like a Cypress test. Um, that's what I see as the main issue with those. Again, in theory, they're the best, which is why I'm hesitant to say that you don't want to do them because it would be great if you didn't have to have anybody ever manually test those things. And I think that at a component level, you could probably write something that's not going to change that often and fail for no reason. But at the page level, yeah, everything just changes too much. Hmm. What would you, in very layman terms, can you explain what storybook is? Because oh. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, I'm sure yeah, a lot sure. Of don't <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I first heard about Storybook actually from Startup Slam last year. One of the, the talk right before mine was about Storybook. And it's essentially a, it's a sort of library thing that you can use with, at least I know it's useful for React. I don't know if you can use it with other frameworks as well. But it allows you to view a component completely isolated and then pass in props and it renders the component based on those props. So you could have something like a, well, the thing actually I did for Spotify's uh, open source project, it was a, <clears throat> this big like target. And I don't actually understand what it was because they provided just fake data that I had to pump into it and make sure it rendered the same. But it kind of looked like a um, radar. That's what I'm trying to think of. A radar with a bunch of dots on it. And it had to appear a certain way based on certain props that were passed in. And so what that allows you to do is in Storybook, without having to worry about rendering the rest of the app or the context of how this fits into a page view or into your layout, you just look at one component. It's completely isolated. And you can name each type. So if you had something like a social sharing component that had a bunch of your social icons, you could have something like social sharing small, social sharing large, social sharing small dark mode, and social sharing large dark mode. And you would just flip between them and you've already said what props you're providing to it. And then you just see what it looks like. And so it is really nice to work with and you can create little dashboards that have a bunch of them. So you could see all the different types all together. And yeah, if there's a, some ability, which I don't, I'm not an expert in storybook, but I've only worked with like a small amount. And if there's a way to add testing to that, I could see that being a lot more useful than something like a full browser-based end-to-end test on an app, because those components, they don't have a very large DOM, so they're not going to change that much. That makes sense. Cool. Yeah. Um, I, I hope I get to test out test it out uh, sooner or later. I guess do maybe you? I'll do you though. I, I kind of do. I like playing around with technologies until I decide it's not for me and then I never look at them ever again uh, like assembly. Uh, but I was really curious about it and I thought it was cool. I just didn't think it was very practical for my growth and I stopped looking at it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, but like t t touching on just more testing stuff, um, you, you touched on Selenium and when I first looked at Selenium and browser testing, it blew my mind. I was like, whoa, you, now I have a running container 
and inside this virtualized Linux or whatever, I have a browser that's also virtualized, sort of, uh, especially when you run them in headless mode. I'm like, whoa, it's like rendering the whole thing, clicking on it somehow without a UI. And until the moment I had to fix a lot of those problems and how Selenium behaved and it was, it was, it was a dream. It was a really nice dream. Uh, which I again very strongly believe uh, could could be made better, like instead of looking for things with their positions and stuff, give every single element in your universe a unique ID. Uh, that sounds very easy in my head, but I'm sure that's not how it works when you actually implement it on the front end and do things with it. Um, but you know, it's my dream. I get to have it. I don't need that look I see in your face. <laughs> yeah, it's all fun and games until you have a drop down library that decides it wants to render dropdowns anchored to a zero by zero pixel that's in the top left corner of your screen so it's never clickable. That's super rad. Wow. Yeah, because Selenium or Cypress, whatever you're using, it just gets confused. And it's just like, cannot click, no content. And you go, but I can see it, it's right there, but it doesn't know. So there's a lot of problems or things that are invisible that are over top of something that as a user, you know, uh, the field is right there, but it looks at it and says, there's something covering it. I can't click on it. And you go, I know you, I know you can. And I'd love it if you just tried. <laughs> it's trying its very best. Uh, although what Selenium is really good for is web scraping. So listen right. up your script kitties, uh, <laughs> go ahead and scrape all those yeah. websites for all their content. Making your production app stable. Not so much. Being a, a pain, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I was I was fetching out stock prices from some place once. Uh, actually, no, exchange rates when I was a very new developer and fetching that from this web page, parsing them out, putting them in a MySQL database so I can run analytics on it. And like two weeks later, I'm like, oh, there's an API. I didn't have to do any of this work. Could have gotten it back in JSON in real time and be done with it. Uh, Cool, cool. So, <laughs> so tell me about a, your, your testing, things you have found work well, don't work well, those sorts of yeah. things. Yeah, so a lot of my testing will just come from the perspective of mostly backend stuff um, and ops and like stability and trying to just break everything. Uh, that's the kind of testing I really enjoy. Uh, that's the kind of testing I've always been sort of good at. Um, and that's the testing is is also very valuable. If I can break it before it ever reaches anybody, I know the limits of this application. Um, yeah, so as far as APIs and backends are concerned, the I've, I've done lots of unit tests, uh, just bare normal unit tests for like Java. Uh, that was just using Java unit test libraries that are baked in and they're, they're pretty decent. Um, you, I think that was the, probably the first and the only real time when I've written tests where I write tests first and then I write my feature. I know there's lots of... Yeah, this is something we should talk about in this discussion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's there's debate on it. I'm sure we can talk about it in, in a little while. Um, but yeah, the, that's where I started. And then I moved on to Python where I did a lot more integration testing. Up until that point, I hadn't actually written any APIs. So I didn't really need to do any integration and like move up that little pyramid of, of the testing pyramid or I guess the inverted cone. I don't know why, why some people call it that. 
it's like the ice cream cone or something. Um, yeah, but the integration, yeah, it's, it's called the it's, reverse ice cream cone. It's just a Sorry. pyramid. <laughs> I know it's just a pyramid, but some, yeah, whatever. I, I, I was, I was in a, pre, in a lot of presentations where they're like, it looks like a reverse ice cream cone. I'm like, are you that just not familiar with geometrical shapes that you'd rather <laughs> use like ice cream object? Uh, well, you know, if it works for you, it works for you. Who am I to judge? Um, but yeah, so for unit and integration testing, did a lot of Python there. Um, my favorite thing about backend testing or just any of these, especially with Python that I learned was monkey patching. Anytime there's an external API I can't control, monkey patch the response. Uh, I am here to test my code and only understand what I'm doing as well or not and how it behaves if the external API doesn't return anything properly or does. Um, and I don't actually spam the external API. This is actually how I wrote my very first integration program. This, there was this external service and my test was hitting it constantly every time we ran it. And my senior dev came to me and she's like, what are you doing? Why are you spamming this poor API? You should not be doing this. And I was like, how are we going to know the actual response if we don't actually hit it in real time? Um, and that's when she introduced me the, the concept of monkey patching. She's like, you can just fake it. So you're using monkey patch to mean something different than what I was understanding. So I always call that a stub when you stub, okay. stub the request or stub the response. And yeah, I had something similar. We were working with a CRM uh, back at GoToMobi and we could not be pushing fake users from our tests into that because that would have been bad. So it was really important that we never accidentally did that while running our test suite. So. Uh, that taught me a lot about the same thing. But yeah, well, I always called it, I still call it stubs. Uh, monkey patching, I was thinking of as being, if you have an interface that you need to sort of adapt to a existing interface. So like somebody else provided, say, a library and it doesn't quite match what you need. You need to like monkey patch them so that they work together. That's what I was thinking of. Um, okay. But well, I I know it's it may be called maybe they're both called that, but I know for sure in Python it's called monkey patching because okay. the library is called monkey patching. Fair enough. That lets you do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know in Java we called them stubs uh, when I was doing some something like that in Java. Uh, but yeah, the Python monkey patching library was pretty sweet. Um, that that's where. A lot of that experience came and a lot of um, contention about what and what shouldn't go in a certain test. Uh, for example, I was never a huge fan of during integration testing, if you own the database, if that's what you're writing and reading from, to patch the database responses. Because I, I just see no reason to do that unless you exclusively only want to test the the logic in the Python code. Um, but if the database is just a store and retrieve place, you may want to test that because if a certain different data comes in or you write or read too many too fast, you you, you want to know that before it happens in production. And some may make the argument that they did before with me that that kind of stuff gets caught in what's the top, the end-to-end -end testing in the pyramid. Uh, but it was a startup and there was no end-to-end -end testing. So I knew they were full of shit, uh, I'm full of crap. 
uh... I'm surprised. No, I don't think it matters. I'm surprised that that was the argument that you got because I don't know that I've seen any argument against or like from team members I've worked with of people saying that when you would otherwise write to the database that you should prevent that from happening and mock the response. It's because I think partially why it was being not done is also because there's a lot of overhead. Now you have to set up a separate test schema or a test database because you don't want it running in your test or whatever end goal you have of running these things. which, you know, I understood, but I would have accepted that as an answer too. So it's an excuse because that's a one-time thing. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. So now you don't believe that that's a good idea, right? Yes. I, I think te- if, if you own the database and you are writing a reading from it with your API, that should be part of integration testing and not end-to-end. Cool. Uh, end-to-end should include end-to-end, front-end and everything. And then that's mostly just to see everything's going back and there's no real patching happening. There's no real, unless it's something outside of your organization. Uh, even then, I'm sure, depending on the company or whatever, you can make the argument that it should. Um, but yeah. So that was my that was my initial, or I guess most of the experience I've had with backend testing. I've done it in TypeScript and other things, and it's always been the same thing. Unit test the special little helper functions and such majority of them almost always have been credit APIs or scheduling systems and you just test them doing the integration testing if they have an endpoint to hit. Um, yeah, and then the other kind of testing I did that I really still enjoy to this date is network testing, network loads, breaking things. Um, in, I guess I guess we should also provide some libraries uh, for anybody listening that would be helpful. So. Python, um, Python has PyTest and uh, monkey patching library, look it up. And for TypeScript, wait, what's the TypeScript library? I know I've written it, I know I've run it. You're talking about Jest? That's the Yes, m- help, most thank you. Yeah. I was like, it's it starts with the J and there's testing and I just, uh, even though that's not why they called it Jest, it's whatever the funny old, old-timey thing the, is supposed to be. The Jester? Yes, that's what it's named after. I'm pretty sure. Well, that's what their icon, like their little logo, is. Yeah. 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 So I guess is it is it because it mocks? Uh, oh, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe if it is, uh, I don't know. Nathan's gonna buy me a drink. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's on record. You can't take it back. Uh, and yeah, and for network uh, network tools and loading, there's lots. Uh, my favorite has been Locust. Uh, one of my friends slash colleagues, ex-colleagues, John actually introduced me to it. Uh, It was, you write a little Python script, you give it a bunch of parameters, and you tell it how to interact with your API, and then you can say, all right, go swarm this API. And you can define parameters that gives you nice little statistics. And they, and that takes a little bit time to set up. So if you're an impatient person like me, there's also a command line tool called Apache Benchmark, which comes with most Linux and Mac distributions pre-installed. So you just go on your command line and you type AB dash the amount of requests you want to send and the URL, and that's it. And we'll start spamming that. Uh, 
Um, um, yeah, and DDoSing websites isn't cool, kids. Don't do it. Uh, this is not what I'm what I'm preaching here, but it's fun and do it when you have the permission <laughs> for it. <laughs> yeah, those are, those are my two experiences. Um, yeah, and then I guess one of the biggest things that helped me test or understand those tests was because I was working with developers who knew what good architecture was. Uh, what are your thoughts on? how much of an impact it takes to write good tests when your code is architected properly and yeah. what, what are good architecture patterns to follow if you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think writing enough tests feels like you're writing a bit more than you want to and it should inform how you write your code in the first place and if it doesn't, you're going to make things a lot more difficult for yourself. So what I mean by that is everybody, if you're okay with writing a test, is usually okay with writing a couple tests that are for like happy paths. But it's not always fun to deal with the things that you know you should write where you're going, all right, I know there's probably an edge case here that I should cover, but it's a pain to write this test or the mock is kind of frustrating to work with or whatever. There's always going to be those and you should still try to write those especially if you're also developing the feature at that point, because it can often inform how to write more testable code, which in general is less or is more decoupled from other things. So units of code are easier to test than things that are highly integrated with other parts of the system, because then you have to mock all those things out. And when you're writing tests for it, you go, this is such a pain. And I'm not sure I'm even testing what it does because it's relying on all these other things. So at least my perspective on it is if you're doing things that are very normal, if you're building CRUD APIs, for example, there are frameworks that make your life very easy to do most of that work. And it's worthwhile to take the time to get comfortable with that framework so that you can count on your tests to actually be testing what you think they're testing. And if they, if you can change stuff and they don't fail, then there's a problem. So I've had this before where I'm pretty sure that I finally managed to get a, get my code to work the way that I'm thinking it's working so that the test is now passing. And then I'll refactor a test and then change the code and the test still passes. And I go, ah, I ruined something with this because the way I changed the code should have broken this test and it wasn't passing before until I got it to, until I wrote the code properly. Now they're both broken. And you go like, this is such a, such a disappointing thing. So that has happened to me if a framework doesn't work the way I anticipate. So when I clean up the code, so to speak, it ends up removing some sort of uh, level of strict assertion that I thought was there. Um, and it actually wasn't. So for example, if you're modifying a, if you're working with a database and modifying an object and then assuming it's getting written, then that has caused problems for me before where I'll be testing something that's just in memory and then it never actually gets committed to the database. So then if I don't explicitly test that in my test, I can sometimes refactor my code 
and make sure that it would cause the test to fail and realize it didn't fail. So that test was actually kind of pointless because all it was testing was your serializers and just making sure that it moved some data around a little bit and then threw it away. So it's always really important to validate that your tests are actually testing something and to take the time to be, get comfortable with what you're writing so that you're writing what you think you're writing because I've had problems with that before. Uh, and again, yeah, like I said, testing or code that's easy to test is generally a bit better written. So writing for yourself uh, to be able to write tests and not necessarily pushing all of your test writing to the very end. Thoughts? Yeah, yeah. The pushing your test till the very end uh, did strike a chord. Uh, have definitely done some work and worked with teams where we, we just did a whole bunch of features, kick them out, and then we're like, ugh. Now we have to all write tests. And it didn't, doesn't seem all that bad until you have to either refactor it, take some code out and put it in a microservice, or do anything to it that is not sitting in that one little block. And then you're like, gosh, I wish I had tests. Uh, yeah, very much, very much a saddening moment that happens later. Also, are you saying every time I change my code, if a test fail and I just delete it, that's a bad practice? No, that's what you should do. <laughs> delete all your tests as you go. If a test fails, you probably wrote it wrong, so just delete it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> you're talking, you talking about it reminded me of the story. Uh, one of my senior devs, she, she was telling me about this story that one of her interns did where they were writing tests and what they did, what they were doing is when they would assert the values, but they're doing it in a different terminal, they're just running that program with their satisfied input, whatever output they get, they just copy paste it into the test. <laughs> and she was just like, no, that's, that's exactly how it fails. <laughs> uh, I just thought, I was like, this is smart. This is what I would have done as, a, as an intern just to like get by. So one thing that I just thought of that I would like to point out explicitly was I alluded to the idea of writing code that's easier to test and then having things that are really mocked tend to be more difficult to test. So one thing that I think people who are only familiar with object-oriented or class-based code can sometimes run into that people who come from a functional programming background or have done some functional programming uh, might not understand is the benefit of having more things not in classes because if you have, for example, some validation that you can test as just a pure function, then you can test that. You don't have to mock all the crap around it. So if you have some business logic, for example, that doesn't need to be, you know, a, I'm forgetting the word, but something where you instantiate only one instance of it uh, for the entire um, application. Uh, Static? Global? No, no, it's, it, there's a name for it though. When you instantiate one instance of something just for the purpose of having it. Uh, but if you have like business logic wrapped in that and now you have to stub everything around it to test it, I'd say there's a chance what you really just needed was more of a package, which is just a collection of validation functions or something like that. And those can then be tested very easily. So something that I was working on in the last few weeks was a bunch of code for listening to events and then pushing them onto a queue and handling them in a particular way. So essentially deciding when the event needed to be pushed to the queue, when it didn't, uh, 
processing the data in a certain way. And it sounds like that's very uh, highly integrated with other systems, but because of the way it was written, it was really just one thing listened for the event. There was all the logic, which was purely functional, and then there was the thing that you would push it to when it was done. So you could test like 98% of it in the middle and then just make sure that, yeah, when we fire this event, does it trigger this method to be called? And as long as it does, then you have this big old test suite that's testing the method itself. And then does that method also then call the thing that pushes it to the queue? It does, great. You've got really good coverage and you didn't have to do a bunch of mocks around your logic and say like, Every time that I push to the queue, make sure that I return a success response, which is just a pain. So that's what I was implying when I said uh, more testable design. Yeah. And I'm not, no not, I don't really feel like I'm an expert in this, just to be clear, but that's something that I found uh, really works well, at least for guiding what I think about when I'm trying to figure out how I should write something. Yeah. No, that's... Uh... It's definitely something I've experienced as well. And coming from also not an expert perspective, I suppose, uh, that was something extremely beneficial when I'm architecting a certain code or a certain flow. Like, sure, even if a certain flow is supposed to be complex, you can distribute it out in different functions, right? You write simple functions, functions that that's like the base they teach you when they're teaching you how to code is function should do X and it should be named properly and it should perform its own duty. So if you do have a function that's doing something super complex, maybe break it out into different functions and make sure they're all doing their unit of work. Um, I'm sure if something is doing some real complex model, it, like interaction with the model, depending on your architecture, you could probably just move it to the model side of code that that unit test tests and you don't have to worry about database locks and how the error will get handled because the model is probably handling it. Um, and it's just depending on how you've architected it, you could make it so that, you know, that breaking things down in functions helps you. And then you could just do the simple thing of, okay, I called function X, did it call function Y? And every mocking library more or less gives you back, yes, this function was called, how many times was it called? and you could just validate your testing uh, through that. Yeah, for sure. So tell me again about test-driven development. Have you ever <laughs> done extreme programming? How much do you love it? <laughs> Man, I knew I was like walking into that. Um, well, so extreme programming, I have very dearly loved every time I was doing a personal project or a hackathon. Never really? have I... <laughs> Yeah, it's you put on headphones, you get in the zone, and you just write out a bunch of code that works. I'm I'm failing to see the confusion or the astonishment here. Would you like to elaborate? A hackathon seems like the last place I would have expected extreme programming. Okay, wait. Are we maybe I'm confusing it with cowboy coding. Would you like to elaborate <laughs> the opposite. on what extreme? <laughs> Okay, yes. So tell me what extreme programming is because I'm probably misremembering. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are you familiar with Uncle Bob? No, I'm not familiar. He's this... I'm familiar he's, with Uncle Sam because they're our neighbors. <laughs> no, he's this personality that likes to talk about how important testing is. Um, I think he was involved with a bunch of uh, 
theory on how programming should be done. But anyway, he's the one I associate with extreme programming, which is you, I think there's a, a handful of small rules, but it's a form of extreme test-driven development where you don't write any code until you have a test and that test is failing. Then you write the smallest amount of code necessary to make that test pass, no more. Then you write more test, which requires more code, and you only write the amount of code necessary to make that test pass, and you continue. Revisit okay. my question. Uh, I hate extreme programming from the description that you provided. Uh, no, not only would I not do that in my hackathons and personal projects, I will not do that in a real life work project either. Uh, unless I'm just so worried that the code I'm writing is so fragile. Extreme programming sounds like a nightmare uh, for somebody like me who likes to get in the flow, get something done, and then make sure it doesn't break by breaking it a hundred times. Uh, yes, yeah, so I am 100%. I was confusing it with cowboy coding. I apologize. According uh, to Wikipedia, it is a lot more than I even thought it was. I thought that uh, was extreme programming. That's what I've always understood it to be. But they're talking about pair programming and continuous integration. It sounds like agile, really. Um, so new buzzword in the tech industry so there's so many <laughs> our dynamic new startup uses extreme programming as its base blockchain I'm, I'm just imagining like having a laptop on a skateboard or i don't know skiing down a hill with a laptop in your hands anything extreme with a laptop in your hands. lots of adrenaline and yeah. also code S skydiving with a laptop in your hand yeah how all the best startups are made. I feel like we can fly that idea in the Silicon Valley. If somebody's trying to steal this, please give us some royalties. So, okay, let's go with less extreme version. Test-driven development in general. Okay. Thoughts? Uh, yeah, so test-driven development, I, I, do, I do think it's a good practice depending on whatever scale of the project you're working on. Because... Um, in an ideal world, I would have really liked tester and development where it's like, okay, this, you make sure what you're writing passes a certain set of parameters. And then if any time you make a change to it or while you're developing, the test doesn't succeed, you're doing something wrong because the test was written first, keeping a certain set of parameters and output in mind. And we know this is supposed to be our holy grail. Uh, Test-driven development is actually how they taught us uh, how to do development at college with Java and everything. And actually mostly with just Java, our Python instructor was very chill on testing. Uh, wonder why. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, test-driven development, really good for like actual longer term projects that you would need to maintain or work on. I. I guess not even driven development. I just have never written tests every time I've been doing a hackathon or anything. Um, I think I do them for special contracts that we may need to showcase. Uh, if I'm working at a company and they wanna show how good their coders are uh, and we need to ship something really quickly, then we do do it with that uh, for winning competitions. But besides that, yeah, test-driven development and ideology, it sounds really good. Again, in real life, there's constraints, there's deadlines, there's pressure from management who is just like, why this will ever always break? What's 99.99% reliability? It's got to be 100 at all times. We have the best developers. Um, so, 
yeah, that those are pretty much my thoughts. Yeah, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, which is, in theory, theory and practice are the same, but in practice it's not. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about test-driven development. And actually, I've done a fair bit of it when I'm just working on my own project if it's logic heavy. If, for example, if I'm interacting with just an API and then just processing the data, sometimes it is really nice to just write functions and say, this is what I need the function to do. And then every time I save, just have Jasmine run the tests. And then I can see, all right, I'm, I've missed this edge case, but I've got everything else working or whatever. And doing that sort of thing has actually been really nice. What I've found to be my limiting factor with test-driven development in real life is the issues that I mentioned with working around a framework. Oftentimes, I don't have the confidence that my test is actually telling me that, like, is actually going to test the thing I think it's supposed to test. So the way I tend to do my development if I'm working with, again, a CRUD app or something, I'm building an API out, is I'll just curl the API, or if I already have a front end for it that I'm building at the same time, I'll just make sure that I'm able to fetch that and get the data back that I think. Then I write a test to make sure that it's not gonna regress. And they do serve more as regression tests. But ideally, and what I used, I actually did this when I was maintaining a Ruby on Rails app, which I think we just had a really good way of writing tests there. And there was also just a lot of magic in the Rails framework that I wasn't comfortable with. So it was really useful for me to write tests that said, for example, this two-way relationship exists because you have to do things like belongs to and has many or has one. And that was so confusing to me because you would only put it on the one model and if you put it on the wrong one, it didn't work. And so I would just make sure that things like, you know, users dot friends or whatever dot exists, however they did it in Ruby and just made sure that that existed and I would write a test for it and be like, did I properly create this relationship? Yes, I did, great. And that was, it was kind of like guardrail programming at that point where I'm just smashing into things and making sure that it's actually kind of heading in the right direction. But when you know generally how to build a feature, but you don't know exactly what that feature needs to look like, and you don't, you have more confidence in your ability to write the feature and then manually test it than you do write a, a test that's going to properly cover that feature. I just find it hard to argue for writing the test first because of the low confidence there versus the high confidence in I can write the feature and if it's not giving me what I want in the front end, because I'm usually doing both at the same time, I'll update the feature and once it's all the same, sort of lock it in place with tests. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, every time you were doing user.friends.exist and the answer was zero, did you feel bad? Did you relate to it? Yeah. Yeah, that was also back before I had all this muscle memory. So I'd accidentally type, instead of npm run, I would often type npm ruin. And <laughs> it felt a bit too real as well. <laughs> like, I am going to just ruin it, aren't I? Uh, but uh, we've yeah. gotten past that point in my life. Yeah. Now I just write npm run and mm. everything's fine. I thought you were yarning now or something. No, it's most, I've actually never used yarn. Uh, I use a lot of make these days because it's, mostly a Python running on Linux setup. So may as well just use that. 
Uh, I had an, oh, randomized testing. Have you ever done much with randomized testing? Uh, you mean like something like that generates random inputs? Mm -hmm. Um, well, the only thing I've done with randomized testing is random seeding the databases um, and then running those inputs throughout the programs, but nothing like, like very, maybe for like unit testing certain small function blocks where I give it a bunch of lists and then randomly pick something from it. But then more or less all the time it, I make it run through everything. Uh, so it's not really, I guess, that much random. I just save code by putting all my inputs that I possibly can think in a single thing, dynamically generating code because I'm a lazy text writer. Uh, uh, no, have you? Yeah, so I, I wish it was more common because I actually think random by default would be the better way to do most of these things because you have, the way I really liked it that it was described when I was learning about generative or property-based testing, which is a more specific version of that, was that when you've written a test and you run the test suite over and over again, you're really just saying nothing's changed, but you're not giving it a chance to prove that it's wrong. You're just saying this one case I thought of, this example is still not broken. Whereas it'd be much better to be able to say, giving a string, for example, if it was like an identity function, giving a string, you give me back that string. Or if it was too lowercase, no matter what I give you, it should all come back lowercase. Uh, if you're able to write tests like that, then you are more confident in the behavior of your system with each test run because you've now tested a wider variety of things. Um, the problem becomes, and the difficulty with that, is finding a way of writing a test that doesn't just implement the feature that you wrote. So when you're able to test, for example, something end-to-end, -end, and there's a lot of data going in, it be, it's processed, maybe saved to a database, and then serialized again, and you want to validate that the serialized value is the same as the value you passed in, that's useful. And if it changes every time, like if the input changes every time, it should always match. That I think is better than something like a specific example where you're just saying, if their name is Bob, it comes back Bob. Uh, if, it, mm. if the string changes every time, then you'll, if you have a random test failure, you can see, oh, if I have backslash underscore hat symbol dollar sign, for some reason that doesn't save properly. And now you know that, but you wouldn't have thought to write that specific thing. And then the more specific, that hasn't come up much, but again, when I've specifically had personal projects based around testing, <laughs> I've done a lot of that. And then a more specific version of that is property-based or generative testing. And so that's where you def describe a property of something and try to write tests based around that. And so that gets more into the, the nerdy land because it originally came from QuickCheck, which was written in or for Haskell, one of the two. Uh, and it managed to find some bizarre edge case. But the cool thing that something like QuickCheck does, because there's a Jasmine library for it that I've, I used a few years ago, it spams with a bunch of attempts at testing this property you've defined. And if it finds a fail case, it gives you the minimum version of the failing case. And so let's just say, for example, you had some 
function that was always supposed to give you back a positive number, and it found some combination of inputs that gave you back a negative number, and it turns out that, let's just say, the sum of all those just had to be negative, it could give you back negative one. And say, so like, all I had to give you was negative one, and it gave me back a negative number. And then that's your simple case, and you can say, why is that the case? You don't have this weird, randomly generated massive input that you have to figure out what's the problem with this. Uh, and so that's really cool. I do wish it was more applicable to real life situations, but it's very, it's a very interesting way to stimulate like mental challenge if you want to just enjoy sparking curiosity in testing a little bit, which I think can be useful, even if it just gets you thinking about testing in a different way. Yeah, I mean, imagine how many programs are gonna fail now when they enter Elon Musk's kid's name in the system. That's right. Right? <laughs> yeah, Ash something. I don't even remember the there rest of the name. It's, it, I just remember from Joe Rogan. He's like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's Ash, Ash. Uh, and then goes on to explain the rest of it. And I, I don't remember the rest of it. Everyone's just going to call him Ash. I think we all know it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, besides one testing joke, I'm, I have checked everything off that was on my list. Impossible. Do you have anything you would like to touch on? Is testing good? Yes, testing's great. And you should do it. And don't, let you, don't leave it up to your users. Yes, yeah. That one, that, that, that will bite you in the metaphorical ass so hard. Just, especially when it reduces the customer's confidence in you and, you know, yourself. Next time you do a commit or a push, you'll think about it like 10 times. Uh, so just just do better. Just start writing it from the beginning and you don't have to worry about it. So a funny, a funny thing, <laughs> I don't know if I should admit this, but a funny thing about working with people you don't fully trust is that you end up writing really defensive tests and it's good practice. So even if you trust your coworkers, maybe just pretend you don't and then think how would someone with less focus on writing good code break this and just write some tests for it and that way, you've got some tests in place for if somebody comes in and just decides to remove your null checks or something, you'll be like, hey, don't do that. And you'll have to see in the, in the diff when they push up a PR that says you remove this test. And you'll be like, that test was there for a reason. Mm. He's really just talking about me. We did work together, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, I think that concludes my main thoughts on testing as well. It was a bit of a, a wander about the testing discussion, but mm -hmm. I think I think it was good nonetheless. I, I, I think so too. I think there was a lot of value on different tools, methodologies, and whatever have you, at least from a developer's perspective. Um, There's going to be a bunch of websites that are going to be real mad they get dosed right now. But... <laughs> uh, well, maybe they should do better. Maybe they'll, right. they'll have an auto-scaling proper handling thing. Right. Yeah, it's, it's not that hard, uh, right? As I say that, <laughs> it's not as that I say hard. that, do better dot club gets DDoSed the moment this goes live. So. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> or just after this conversation, because I'm going to go do that. Oh, okay. Uh, well, you're spamming AWS, and they will come after you. Jeff Bezos will personally attack you if you, if you crash my website. Well, he is subscribed, so I'm okay with that. 
Oh, cool. <laughs> um, Big fan. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess for for ending segments, uh, what what would you like to do better in the next week? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wasn't very specific, but I fell down a rabbit hole of building <laughs> computers and microprocessors uh, in Minecraft using Redstone, which nice. I learned I first learned about maybe five or six years ago. And it totally blew my mind, but I had no interest in electrical engineering at the time. And I could see myself falling into that. So I'm going to start with logic gates and latches, and we'll see if I can write an arithmetic unit thing uh, at some point in the next couple weeks, just through a tutorial, because it'll take me forever, because I'm still not very good at controlling the, the player. So it's a slow process, but... I'm curious to see what I learn and just going to keep following this until I decide that I am bored of it or two months is up because I'm going to try to cap at least the initial investment at two months and then reassess. Be like, is this a good idea? Should I spend my time doing this? It's a great idea. You just got to have a longer beard if you're going to do too much assembly. It's just, it's just the way it is. I'm you're, sorry. Yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, I'll trim it a bit more up here so it's just more neck. Mm. That should be fine. Yeah. Or maybe Think. it's I have the correlation wrong. Maybe as I write more assembly, the neck beard increases. Mm. I think we just need to find out. I think two months is our window. You cannot groom. Oh. I don't know. I'm already single enough, Gan. I don't need. <laughs> I don't need to not groom. It adds to the trouble. <laughs> just, just you know. But what if you good get really good at it and you develop? Have you seen the movie Her? No. Oh okay. It's a guy who falls in love with an OS. Yeah, voiced by Scarlett Johansson, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I know of it. <laughs> what are you gonna do, Barry Gan? Uh, what am I gonna do better? Uh, actually, uh, I woke up this morning. Oh, and good. And I, I can tell. <laughs> Wait, this is not a dream, man. It's all being played through your Neuralink. <laughs> that makes sense. Thanks, Musk. Um, no, I I woke up this morning, and one of the things I've been trying to do is like, I wake up and I ask myself, I value, and then I try to fill in the blanks. Um. And today, I said I value video games. So for this week, uh, I'm actually going to just try to play more games. I haven't given myself enough time in the last couple of weeks with the blog going live and writing content for it. Mm -hmm. And making social media accounts is kind of boring slash exhausting. Uh, so I am going to take a little break from that and whatever amount of time I invest in watching Instagram memes, which is way too much, uh, I will be playing some video games. Uh, I need to use my PS4 a little bit more. So I'm definitely going to do that. And yeah, might go see some friends this weekend. And you decided against playing the Lord of the Rings game? Yes, I have. Uh, it's the Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor, I think, or something. Uh, I was told it does not have a great compelling storyline and that's a primary driver for me to play anything. So I will be refraining from it, and mm. I don't know. I, I will go look at my library and see what I want to play, or if there's something cool, I'll just buy it and then play it over the next week. I think we have the opposite interest in games. 
because I am not interested in the story, just the game loop. So I will, this is good information for me because if you ever recommend a game, I'll know it's based on story. Yeah, and if you want to like get your emotions heard and just really dive deep into something, um, those are great. Play, play Naughty Dog, play like Last of Us, Morning and two. your heart will be ripped out from your chest in both of those games, and you would want it. You would want it. Uh, no, I gotta go build a computer in Minecraft. <laughs> that sounds a lot of fun. Oh, actually, before we end, uh, I looked at my notes again, and I remembered the joke about testing. This could be the original sound clip that we play. Um, okay, so a software developer designs a bar. The QA comes in, they order a negative 9,000 drinks, a black box drinks, a billion drinks, 10 drinks. And then the first customer walks in, they ask where the bathroom is, and the whole battle catches on fire. That's, uh-huh. that's the only QA joke I know as well, so I was expecting <laughs> <laughs> that to be the one. It is good, though. It is, it is really as, good. As far as software development jokes go, it's good. Yeah. It's up there with off by one errors. Yes. Those are always good punchlines. Ah, oh, man, Stack Overflow. Yeah, it's like such a such a great thing. Make so many jokes on it. This is what like made Mahatma Gandhi want to nuke shit in civilization. Did you? Okay, this is not a story you know. I'll save it for some other podcast. That Excellent. Is like close to an hour already or yeah. a little over if not just just rambling at this point <laughs> pretty much so everyone thank you for your time thank you for visiting the do better dev show podcast heck yeah um yeah if you have any comments any feedback for us please Keep reach out oh <laughs> uh, if you have anything nice to say reach out to us if you don't keep it to yourself or dm nathan on nwcalvang.dev he takes constructive criticism pretty well mm. Yeah, you actually can't send messages to me on there, but uh, oh, you can say it on has Twitter. All your social links, right? Yeah, but I don't. I I mean, you could message me on Instagram, maybe. Uh, do you have to follow? Do we have to follow? You no, I have okay, no. Yeah. I have no fame, so I haven't worried about it. If you make me internet famous as a result of this, I may have to go more <laughs> private. But yeah, Twitter is probably the most reasonable place, but I'll not check it. So mm. Twitter's still good. All right. <laughs> Yes, if you have something not nice to say, go to Nathan's Twitter, and we'll see you in the next episode. Cool. Bye.